The sermon lesson for today comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the gospel of the Lord. Our good Lord, you once told us that we're not meant to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we ask that you would feed us with food this morning that leads to life. And it is in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. So last week we started on this journey going through the Gospel according to Matthew. And this is one of four personal accounts of the life of Jesus, each told from a different individual from a different perspective and even for a different purpose, but they all tell the same story of Jesus, of who he is and what he has done and why he matters so much. And this gospel that we are diving into was written by one of Jesus's 12 original disciples. And so this is not just a cold distillation of some facts that are historical that he's sharing, but this is deeply personal of someone who followed Jesus with all that he was and experienced this life-transforming work of God in his own life. And this morning we find ourselves at the real beginning of Jesus' story. And over the past 15 years, you could say there's been this real surge of superhero, superhero movies. And so in each one of them, there's, there's a very similar storyline. There's this person who has these special abilities, who overcomes diversity, uh, who overcomes difficulties in order to accomplish some kind of rescue to save others. And with many of these superhero stories, there's what's called an origin story where it goes back to the very beginning of their lives to see how who they would become and what they would do really was found in seed form in their early years, that something happened early on that would give shape to everything about who they were to be and what they were to do. And so this morning, you could say we're given a glimpse into the origin story of Jesus. We're not given much detail at all. We're kind of given just a small snapshot, almost like one photograph into the early story. With so much being left out, it means that there's something in this account that is going to give us inside a window into why this Jesus matters so much and why he should matter so much to us. And it has everything to do with the name that he is given, or rather the names that 
He has given. Names that should inspire a kind of, of trust and obedience and love and even worship. So when I was growing up, I remember this one television commercial, uh, and it was created by some larger company with a, with a kind of brand name that everybody knew, and they were really competing against all these other startups, and they were trying to, the main message was in essence, hey, you, you know our name, and our name inspires trust, and you, so you should continue coming to us for business, and they found a creative way to kind of show this. And there was this interview going on behind with these kind of parents who were interviewing this young man for a babysitting job, and they're asking him all sorts of questions, um, just about how he might be able to care for their kids and what he might do. And then they they ask him for his full name, and you see it kind of printed at the bottom, and he says his full name is Freddy Krueger, <laughs> which if if you didn't grow up in that era, he's one of like the three most scariest people. In movies, these seven Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And so he's not the real one, but they were trying to communicate, hey, this name is not inspiring confidence and trust that you should leave your children with this individual. And the whole line was, what's in a name? In thinking about what's happening here, Jesus is given two different names that are meant to do the exact opposite. These names are, are meant to, to ring in our ears and go down to our hearts, and they're meant to inspire a kind of wonder, a kind of love, a kind of trust. They're meant to, to reshape how we look at this person and how we understand him in our own lives. And the two names given here for this child are going to communicate these two foundational truths. That in Jesus, God is with us, and in Jesus, God is for us. And before we dive into those, those two foundational ideas, I want to say something about just how we might think about where we're going this morning. Um, over the years, I started as a seminary, I think almost 20 years ago, um, have gone through a lot of schooling, have, have read a lot of books, scripture, theology, history, all coming together have spent almost 20 years diving into people's lives and hearing how, how faith intersects with just the ex human experience. And I would say over those years, my own faith has become a lot more complex. Uh, I've learned a lot more, and at the same time, I've also learned how much I don't know or how little I know. But while my own faith has become more complex and more full, I would say it's also become more simple. Um, there's a real ease in, in the more we learn about Christianity, that the more we can get lost in some of the weeds and not see how it all fits together. And so these two points are really actually very personal for me because they're, they're two of the ways that I, I continue, they're two kind of pillars that I keep coming back to in my own life. God is with me. God is for me. And they find their reality in, in Jesus. And so while these two points may sound simplistic, um, don't let the simplicity fool you. Because our lives are spent really exploring the depths of these two realities for us and how Jesus meets us in there. So first, Jesus is God with us. So in our passage, we're going to meet these two characters that are very important in the life of Jesus and His story, Mary and Joseph. And we are told really next to nothing about them. They're not royalty. They're not influencers. They are an ordinary poor couple that would have seemed very insignificant in 
the eyes of the world. But what we're going to see is that these are going to be very ordinary means by which the floodgates of God's grace are just to become opening wide and God's grace is going to become pouring into our world. And this is a beautiful picture right from the beginning of how God works. God's going to turn expectations and things that we value on their head. So God is going to take something that doesn't look wise or powerful or influential in the lives of the world and He's going to say, that's how I'm going to change everything. We're not told about them, but they are described in positive ways. And from the very beginning, one thing is clear in this account between Mary and Joseph and this child is that whatever is happening here is not something that humanity is doing or is bringing about. From these opening words, we see the accent is on God. And this is a story about what God is doing. And that's really the story of the whole Bible. There's, there's a danger and a temptation for us to kind of turn the Bible on its head and read it as a story of humanity pursuing God in all sorts of different ways. And God kind of running away and being difficult. But the story of Scripture is God's pursuit of us and us running away and us being difficult. And so even in this birth's account of Jesus, we see this is very clearly a work that God Himself is doing for us. Verse 18, Before Mary and Joseph came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is not the creation of Jesus. While we might say this is an origin story, Jesus is, doesn't, I can't even say His beginning goes much further back because that's, God, there is no beginning. In the opening of John's Gospel, he, he put this in a different way. He said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. So what we have here is the eternal Son of God coming down and taking on the fullness of human nature, becoming like us in every way except sin. So what we have here is Jesus being God with us in a way like never before. Which is why we read in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When it comes to this movement of God, to be with us in a way like never before, it goes against so much of the grain of our natural human tendencies of upward mobility. We want better jobs. We want more money. We want bigger houses. We want nicer vacations. We want more respect. We, we want our lives to have that kind of stock market movement that you see in a bull market. We want it to get better and better and better. We love upward mobility. But what we have to see here and what God is doing about, this is not upward mobility for God. This is a deep and steep downward descent to where we are in the lowest of low places. One of the readers that I've enjoyed over the years is Henry Nouwen, who he was a Catholic priest and he left a prestigious teaching job at, at Yale University, I believe it was at Harvard, to serve at this daybreak community which was serving the needs of handicapped individuals. 
And I want you to listen just how he describes this experience. He says, the first thing that struck me when I came to live in a house with mentally handicapped people was that their liking or disliking me had absolutely nothing to do with any of the useful things I had done since then. Since nobody read my books, the books couldn't impress anybody. And since most of them never went to school, my 20 years at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard didn't provide this significant and impressive introduction. I moved from Harvard to La Arche from the best and brightest to men and women who had few or no words and were considered at best marginal to the needs of society. It was a hard and painful move. After 20 years of being free to go wherever I wanted, discuss whatever I chose, I found myself in a small hidden life with broken minds and broken bodies. I thought about what a beautiful picture of that is, even on such a grander scale of of Jesus and His glory, His beauty, majesty, power, wisdom, immersing Himself into our world of of broken minds and broken bodies and and broken hearts and broken relationships. And, And the descent that we so often take for granted that is the incarnation itself and what that says about the heart of the Father and the Son and the Spirit on us. Because He immerses Himself in all of this brokenness. And He's going to take it all on Himself. He's going to become poor. He's going to get sick. He's going to feel pain. He's going to lose loved ones. He's going to be made fun of. He's going to be physically threatened. He's going to be misrepresented. He's going to be ignored. He's going to be told that He's crazy and even that He is possessed by evil spirits. He's going to be rejected, betrayed, shamed, beaten, and ultimately crucified naked in front of His family, friends, strangers, and enemies. And that's just how we as a humanity say welcome to our world. We're glad to have you here. That's not upward mobility. That's a descent. And it's the beautiful story of the Gospel. In Jesus, God is with us in a way like never before. But that's part of the story. It's not just God coming to be with us in a way that is helpless and that can't do anything. I think about so much of my pastoral ministry involves just being with people, um, just kind of being with them in their situations. I, I can't cure cancer. I can't make relationships heal automatically. There's so many ways in which I feel my own helplessness. But as God Himself enters into our world, He doesn't sense that same helplessness. He, he comes with a kind of power and grace in which He is able to be for us in a way that we cannot be for one another. Which brings us to really our second point, that Jesus is God for us. Paul Beautiful describes this descent in Philippians 2 as Jesus... Um, taking this place of the lowest servant. A servant is not continually thinking about their own needs, but a servant really is saying, I I have come to to serve the needs of another, to give of, of my time, my energy, my strengths, my abilities, my resources in order to pursue and help this other. And Paul is saying that's exactly what Jesus came to do. And we see Jesus being God for us in, in, in this other name that He has given besides Emmanuel, which means God with us. Going back, I think about the selecting of our own kids' names. And it was different for, for each boy. I remember for, for Ethan, our oldest, um, who's now 15, Katie and I went to a bar, the Barnes & Noble out, out by the mall. And 
Uh, we got one of those giant books, you know, which basically has every conceivable name that you can name your child. And it's fun to go through those and think, why would anyone ever name their child this name? But we went through it very methodically. So we went through it. We came up with a list. We narrowed it down to 10. And then we took turns kind of going back and forth. And eventually the final one that we landed on was Ethan. And we both loved it uh, for so many different reasons. When Katie became pregnant again, um, we, we went through a very different process. Um, Katie said uh, she really liked the name Andy, and that was kind of the end of it. <laughs> it was one of those like marital discussions that's not really a discussion. And I think I had seen that all she went through with Ethan, like our experiences of birthing were very different. And so when it came to Andy, it's like, you know, if you want to name him Buddy, let's... You, You've earned the right. So we named him Andy. And I love, I love the name too. But in the culture that, that Jesus was born into, names, um, names had much more of a significance than often the, the, the kind of meaning that we ascribe to them today. So they, they had direct meanings. You see Abraham, father of many or father of multitudes. Uh, Isaac, son of laughter. Solomon, peace. Significance for Daniel, Rachel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Many of the names in the Old Testament, they, they, just, they really mean something in, in the Hebrew so that it communicates something. And Jesus is one of those names, that it's a name that we have heard so often and become so familiar with that we don't live in that culture, and so we often miss the significance that would have been loaded into this child giving this particular name. Verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. Jesus comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, which simply means the Lord saves. And it's important to note at this point that it's not Mary and Joseph who are giving this name to this child. It is God himself coming down and saying, I want this child to be named Yeshua, the Lord saves. Because I have purposes for this child, who he is and what he's going to do. And this is our work that we are doing together. So you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. To be saved is to be pulled out of a real danger. But at this time that, that Jesus was given this name, the, the people of Israel, there was longing for rescue. There was longing to be saved. But their understanding of being saved was very external. They looked at their existence in this land that had been promised them by God, and they looked and they were under Roman occupancy. They are like slaves in their own land. And so their hopes, their prayers, their reading of the Old Testament was that God would send this anointed rescuer, this Savior who would come and who would bring this liberation and who would, who would do away with the Romans, who would put them back on top of the geopolitical realm that existed. And that's how they would be saved. And that's what God would do for them. And it would be reason for great celebration. There is a tendency for us to do the similar thing. We talked last week about just in reading the Gospels, how we can take Jesus and we can kind of mold Him in to our own personal hopes and expectations. There's a danger with us coming to Jesus as well and we hear that He, he saves. 
well, Jesus, here are all the things that I need you to do. So to the degree that you can help me with these, you're useful. If you're not going to help me with these, then I've got better things to do with my life. But we start here with what what God is doing. And what God is doing here is, is saying that our greatest need for rescue is not out there. Our greatest need for rescue is in here. They shall call His name Jesus, and He will save His people from their sins. There's many different ways to, to talk about sin and, and what it is, but at its heart, sin is, is a turning away from God and a going our own way. We do this in small micro ways and we do this in macro ways with our life and even with the story of our world. And so right, right from the beginning here of Jesus' life, we are receiving a message that is both comforting and challenging. It's comforting in that Jesus has come to save, and that is good news, but it's challenging in that it's something that we need to be saved from ourselves. That sin is a much deeper problem than we realize. The prophet Jeremiah described this tendency in, in a vivid way. He talked about sin as kind of looking at this as God as this fountain of living water, fresh and life-giving, and turning away from it, and going to these cisterns of murky water that are broken and trying to find our life in those places. But when we think about sin, there's two dangers that we run into. And these are going to be very different. But danger number one is to make sin much less serious than it really is. There's a tendency for us just to not take sin as seriously as God does. To look at sin as these kind of minor, minor slip-ups occasionally that God's like, yeah, don't worry about it. That's fine. But there is a certain gravity that you see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament of this turning away from living waters that is God Himself and turning towards things that will never satisfy. There's a heaviness, there is a soberness to it in the way that it is treated. And there's also a danger, you know, as we think about the culture outside, to, to view sin as something that, you know, the church just kind of creates and likes to talk about because we like to make people feel bad about themselves and we want to exercise a certain amount of, of control over people's lives. And that's not the beautiful story of the gospel in any way. The beautiful story of the gospel is one of liberation. And so there is a danger, number one, of, of treating sin less seriously than it needs to be taken. But there's another danger that's going to um, sound semi-heretical, so bear with me here. And that's the danger of making sin to be much more serious than it really is. So uh, there's ways of thinking about sin and our failings in life that make our sin and its weight, and its power that much greater than God's grace and mercy and power. Um, I think most of us have felt this at some point in the Christian life, those who tried to walk with Jesus and who know their own sins. And you, if you've ever struggled to believe that God has forgiven you for something, uh, that's giving more power to sin than it really has. That's saying, God, I get that your forgiveness and your grace is big, I get that your love pursues. I get that you can change, but 
you don't understand the power of sin. You don't understand how big it is. You don't understand how strong guilt is. You don't know what understand what I've done. It's not that, that sin isn't serious. It's that we're making it more serious than God's grace. And so holding those two together is what we're called to do from the very beginning here. And those come together in a beautiful way in the cross. And we're going to kind of land the plane with this. When you think about what's happening at the cross and a crucified Savior, what you see there is the seriousness of sin and the even greater seriousness of God's grace. A humiliated and beaten and crucified Savior tells a story about how gruesome our own sin is. That's the, if that is the solution, if that is the cure, and there is no other way, then what does that tell you about the disease? But the cross also tells another beautiful story that what He is doing there is more powerful. He is doing that for us and for our sin. And so in the cross, we see these beautiful things come together. The seriousness of our sin conquered by the seriousness, even greater seriousness of the Savior. And what that does is it produces these two beautiful realities in us as believers. We should be a people of deep humility and deep security. We're, deep humi- we're, we're marked by humility because we know we're not better than anyone around us. We know the gravity of sin, of our own sin. And yet we're people of deep security because we know the depth of God's love and of His goodness towards us. I love how Tim Keller puts it on the reflections in, one of your worship, in the cover of your worship guide. He said, The Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. Jesus, the Lord saves. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Two realities that are meant to bolster hope, that are meant to turn our worlds upside down, and may it be so. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for the work that You have done to save. God, we grieve at the gravity of our sin, at its depth, at its darkness, but we are glad, so glad, at the bright light of Your grace, of the power of the resurrection, and that our identity is no longer as sinners, but our identity as those who are in Jesus. God, I pray that uh, those who might feel themselves on the outside this morning would take one step closer to being on the inside and of owning this hope for themselves and for those of us who have walked this life of faith for, for years. Would it become just deeper and more real and more pervasive and produce joy and hope and love and humility and security. And it's in your great name we pray. Amen.